Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Dangerous Rhetoric. This is episode 118. I'm Brentley. Um, my co-host Daniel is not available today. He'll be back whenever he has availability. Uh, today, I have for you author Phil Illy. Uh, Phil has wrote the book on auto-heterosexuality uh, auto called Auto-Heterosexual, auto Attracted to Being the Other Sex. Uh, you guys can find that on Amazon. Phil is uh, also on Substack, right, Phil? You got um, yeah. uh -huh. phililly.substack.com? Yep, and on Twitter at, at autogynophilic. Yes. So, uh, Phil, thank you for taking the time coming on the show. Appreciate it. There's some controversy. We'll get into it later. Um, but I wanted to just briefly, if you could just sort of like sum up your backstory, like how did you get to become like Phil Illy writing about uh, auto sexuality? Um, well, four or five years ago, I, I learned, I encountered the concept of autogynophilia and sort of inferred that I should look in, into this to see if I had this thing because I learned about the, the two type typology in which, you know, um, there's a type of transsexualism that's caused by homosexuality. And then there's another one caused by autogynophilia. And I was, I, I knew that my wish to be female was related to my attraction to women, you know? So mm -hmm. I, I deduced that I couldn't, I wasn't the homosexual type. And so, yeah, I just started reading about autogynophilia and I read, I looked at all the interviews I could with the, the main scientists that talked about it. I read the studies. I went all the way back to the start of the sexology literature and read from the beginning to the present. Um, I just, I was being told by um, trans women online that this wasn't real. And it kind of made me doubt my reality because the science seemed really strong. And, and so it, that made me dive really deep into reading the literature. And then it got to a point where I learned too much to not turn it into something that could benefit other people. And so I started writing a book so that um, my kind could learn about their orientation in a way that was, you know, kind of neutral, not judgmental in any way, um, just so that they could figure out like, hey, what's going on with me? Word. Um, so that led you to write the book. Uh, how long did that take you? When did you start writing and when did you publish it? Um, well, I just obsessively read papers for like a year before even thinking of doing a book. And then I, I started the process of writing the book in June of 2020. And um, I finished the manuscript about a, a year ago at this point. So it took about, you know, two and a half, three years to finish the book. That's a, you know, it's a good amount of time. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a really quick turnaround time considering how, how long it is and how in depth it is. Yeah. I was looking at it. It's like 700 pages, right? And you yeah. go, you go really in depth. Like I, I was looking through it and saw that there's like, you know, you basically, you give a lot of definitions, a lot of terminology, um, and it would look like you were sort of trying to do this exhaustive description almost of the phenomenon and connect it to uh, the transgender uh, issue and show how basically like what people, a lot of these people who believe themselves to be transgender uh, might actually be more auto uh, heterophilic. 
Well, yeah, it's it's not that people are not actually transgender. It's just that this is the explanation for why they are transgender. Okay. Well, see, that's one of those points where you and I probably disagree because I don't I don't really think anybody is transgender. You know, I don't think there's you know people are born in the wrong body. Uh, really, I mean, what, what I think sort of is that we're seeing the manifestation of complex trauma. Um, we've had probably uh, four D-trans people on the show, including Laura Becker, who, you know, um, and two trans people who stayed trans uh, uh, after, you know, their transition. That was uh, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, I'm blanking right now. <laughs> uh, Buck Angel and... Um, Who's the other one? Uh, Sarah, Sarah, um, Miss Sarah Higdon. Those are the two uh, trans people who actually uh, speak positively of their transition and you know don't regret it. But um, everybody, all six of those, uh, all six of the people we've had on, have reported trauma in their in their backstory. Um, so I, I sort of can came to the conclusion that you know there's there's definitely a trauma aspect here um, with gender confusion. And it seems to be also be, you know, uh, occurring in a lot of these uh, these kids that crop up online. You know, uh, uh, Chloe Cole's reported, you know, background of trauma. So it's I, I don't I don't know about your experience. If you have an experience of trauma or not, uh, if you want to elaborate on that, you're more than welcome to or not. You know, I don't like to prod there because it's um, very personal. I, I don't really. I've seen a lot of people propose the trauma hypothesis for for gender issues and for autogynophilia. And I'm, I'm overall doubtful of the trauma hypothesis because it seems pretty unfalsifiable. You know, when people say trauma, it's just, it's like, what specifically are you talking about? You know, and it's, it's usually just like an experience that was too intense for them to incorporate at the time. And it left a mark, basically. That's the definition of trauma, really. Right. Uh, but it's sort of such a broad nebulous thing um, and I, yeah, I just don't think, um, trauma is like where serious gender issues ultimately arise because like, and the reason I think that is because Blanchard's research that he conducted throughout the eighties, um, he found that virtually all male to female transsexuals, um, had one of two anomalous sexual orientations. They were either homosexual or they were autogynophilic. And um, since sexual orientations are sort of like predispositions that are largely inborn, like sure our early life maybe can impact like the sort of women or men we're attracted to, but I don't think it'll ultimately impact, at least for males, too much of how their orientation ultimately develops. Um, but, you know, I think it's sort of, it's pre-existing and latent um, before it's revealed later in life, what, what they're attracted to. And so, yeah, I just think there's, at least for male to female transsexuals, and there's pretty solid evidence that it's, it's a byproduct of atypical uh, gender-based uh, sexual orientations. Yeah, so that's also where I've gotten in trouble before. You know, I talk about the causes of homosexuality, and a lot of people don't like to talk about that because uh, as soon as you start talking about the causes of homosexuality, uh, people tend to view it as a, a defect. You know, it's a deviance from the norm. Um, by definition, it is deviant. You know, we're only, you know, a couple percentage out of the total population. Um, but it's, 
it, it's you can see how that kind of like triggers people a little bit. They get a little sensitive when you talk about like the causes of something. Um, but that's one of the things that I, you know, I thought that trauma also can be associated with uh, male homosexuality. I have uh, a lot of the guys that I've spoken with just over, you know, I'm 41 years old. Uh, I've probably had several hundred sexual partners and, you know, thousands of gay friends um, or gay acquaintances over the years at least. And usually when the subject comes up, there's uh, a trauma component. You know, they were either abused as, uh, as a child or it was a more of a neglect kind of situation where the child wasn't really uh, given a lot of attention as a, from zero to like, you know, five, six, seven, eight uh, from their male parent or the male parent wasn't in the picture at all. Um, and that's just a pattern that I noticed. It's my subjective experience coming up. Um, and so of course, naturally I elaborate that into a more generalized thing, but uh, you know, as to whether or not that's the actual cause of homosexuality or not, who knows? Um, yeah. It's just something I, I enjoy thinking about and discussing and, and bouncing around with other people. Um, yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about a Blanchard's hypothesis of the, have you heard about like the fraternal birth order effect? Uh, no, that's the thing that says what, like the, the more, the later you come, the more likely you are to be gay. Right. Basically the more older brothers you have born to the same mother, the more likely you are to be gay. Yeah. I've heard about that, but I'm sort of evidence of the, the opposite. I'm the firstborn and I'm the only homosexual <laughs> in my family of four kids. So I was, I'm the eldest of four. Right. Um, and that's just one of the causes of, of homosexuality though. It, and yeah, no, and I, I yeah. definitely think there's probably multiple causes. Um, and what seems to be the case is that it happens more frequently in uh, population dense areas. So like things where there's more, uh, where you have like a bigger family that could, they could maybe explain it from an evolutionary biology point of view, because homosexuals in a community are very uh, evolutionarily expensive, right? We don't sort of like contribute to the gene pool directly. Um, right. Generally speaking, yeah, it's sort of like, how does that even happen evolutionarily? You would think it wouldn't even happen. Right, right. So there has to be some reason for it because it happens, you know, like that's kind of the, the whole evolutionary sauce. Um, but it, that's kind of, you know, I think that there's probably some cases like that. I've also seen, you know, I've, I've known twins that were both homosexual. Um, so there's definitely a genetic component. My, my personal beliefs uh, at this point is that there's a genetic and an environmental component. Um, and sometimes you get both and sometimes you don't. Um, you know, I think that there can be a uh, situation probably for a lot of uh, like different gender confusion um, issues and sexual stuff that comes up where it's a, it's an environmental and a genetic propensity. So if you have, if you have the genetic switch, um, it doesn't really activate unless you get that sort of environmental cue at some point in your development. Um, but yeah, I, I was curious, you used you, so you talk about auto um, heterosexuality as an orientation. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, um, I, I think that sexual orientation is a broader thing than whether you're sexually attracted to just men, women, or neither. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think the, the construct of sexual orientation has multiple dimensions to it beyond just gender. There's also, you know, age, for instance, you know, where it's like men often have this preference for younger partners um, or 
you know, people just, they have some age preferences. It tends to be like young adult is often like people's peak attractiveness in terms of what they like. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit of evolutionary biology, right? So women tend to prefer older men because they are better providers, whereas men prefer younger women because they're more uh, reproductively able. Right. That's like the Evo psych explanation for that. Yeah. But, but basically, like, regardless of where that preference comes from, age is one of the dimensions of, of sexual preference. And um, there's also location, which is the, the thing that I'm more knowledgeable in about whether your orientation is directed externally outside of yourself or internally towards yourself. And, and when it's directed internally, it's, it, it creates autosexuality and makes you want to become whatever it is that you love. Mm -hmm. So and, would you yeah. think the same, would you think that, that it impacts like bodybuilders, for example, like, I'm curious if you think it's a similar phenomenon between like dudes that like sort of obsessively work out to become like bigger, more like, you know, this sort of masculine muscular ideal, um, you know, is that sort of like a similar phenomenon in like the like same sex direction or do you think that's something else altogether? I would say if they're, if they're homosexual men, that there's a decent chance of that because you know, that their sexual object preference would be men, mm -hmm. you know, and muscly men perhaps. And then if that gets directed inward, it can make them want to be it. Like I, there is, there's a, there's at least one case study of auto of male autoandrophilia in the literature. And I, I've talked to a couple online through like DMS, um, it, it, male autoandrophilia does seem to be a thing in, in a subset of homosexuals. There's also a famous Japanese guy. I can't remember his name off the top of my head now. Um, but he was like known for sort of it, he, he didn't really identify as a homosexual, but he sort of was in love with this like idea of a, uh, masculinized ideal man. Um, and the pursuit of that ideal, um, and then I can't remember what the heck is. Was he was. the one that was into being like stabbed? Like it was kind of gory what he was into. And then he like launched this rebellion and died by being like, you know, in, in combat. Uh, I think that sounds very familiar. I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, chat GPT didn't help. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> give it a very good prop though. Yeah, but yeah, Oracle no. didn't know. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I didn't give it a crappy prompt. Um, but yeah, that's, that's definitely, uh, that, that sounds like familiar, like part of the story, but that, that struck me as very similar, uh, except it, it's, it's a man instead of who seeing himself as a woman being the, the ideal, seeing himself as the sort of masculized, uh, this, this ideal man would be the sort of like driving force behind it. And, you know, he was also a homosexual, although he didn't like that terminology, um, if I recall correctly. Right. But it still shows the basic principle that sometimes sexual orientation gets, gets routed inward and makes you want to become whatever it is you find attractive. Right. Yeah. So for me, I guess sexual orientation, I think, you know, attraction to men or attraction to women. And that's sort of where I've delimited the concept. Whereas you've included attraction to self versus attraction to other. Um, yeah. So and, and there's also, you know, like I said, age is one of the dimensions. And, and I think what's important to, um, to bring up when talking about whether these things count as sexual orientation is that I'm talking about it from a psychology framework. I'm not talking about it in terms of what should count as sexual orientation 
according to social norms or according to legal frameworks. I'm talking just specifically human psychology, how it seems to work. Sure, sure. No, that's uh, that's understandable. Um, you keep you bring up age, like that's an interesting point because a lot of people, you know, are the the James Cantors of the world, uh, you know, are trying to make pedophilia more of a sexual orientation um, as opposed to you know like a predatory practice or something. Um, that is a major concern from a lot of people uh, across the you know especially conservatives. Conservatives are hot against that one. Yeah, I think when this conversation comes up, it's important to demarcate between an attraction to children and acting on that attraction. You know, when people use the term pedophilia, they often think that means acting on it. And that is obviously morally wrong. So it's, yeah, I just think it's important to have that distinction where like someone can be like have that lifelong attraction to kids and as long as they don't act on it, it's hard to say like morally what was wrong. Right, because you're basically accusing them of thought crime, which you know we don't we don't do. Well, yeah, theory. And like, I under yeah, and I understand being wary of of people that have pedophilia. Like, obviously, it causes a ton of harm, and there's a reason that people get so up in arms about it. Oh, there's a lot of there's a lot of kids out there that have grown up to be adults who never had any sort of justice. It's kind of a big it's like an elephant in the room, really, you know, that along with the sort of child trafficking epidemic that's happening, that's being facilitated actively by the U.S. government and, you know, actors like Jeffrey Epstein. So this is all in like the, in the backdrop of this conversation, uh, which makes it even more, you know, landmine filled and, and tenuous. Um, but you know, you, you delineate between pedophiles who act on it and pedophiles who don't. Whereas in my mind, they're, you know, if you're basically declaring yourself to be a pedophile, you've acted on it. You know what I mean? So like you've either How viewed so? images of, and in my mind, you know, I'm just saying, you know, generally speaking, uh, if you're, if you're willing to go that far, the odds that they've acted on it are high. Also, we have to remember that pre uh, pedophiles are, you know, child predators. I don't even like the word pedophile because pedophile is sort of a translation of like, you know, child like lover of children which in my mind it would be some like a, you know a childless adult that actually enjoys facilitating the uh development of kids as opposed to preying upon them sexually um but you know like i i prefer the term like child predator and we know that child predators generally have hundreds of victims per individual before they're ever caught and some of them are never caught so that's more i, I guess i'm more focused on the victim side of things than i am the pedophile, like James Cantor also likes to do this thing where he separates, you know, offender versus, uh, you know, seeking treatment individual. And while, yeah, it's great that people are seeking treatment, frankly, I just, I don't trust anybody that's sort of publicizing themselves as a pedophile in treatment. To me, I see that as more of a grooming of society to be accepting of pedophiles the same way that we've accepted homosexuals and now transgender individuals into society. Well. So I think it's important to like, like, I feel like this pedophilia is like, obviously different from transgenderism or homosexuality and that acting on it is pretty much always immoral in terms of like, you know, looking at the, the like, what's that acronym? 
child sex abuse material, you know, looking at it. Yes, yeah, Sam. Um, or, you know, actually acting on it with a real kid. That's obviously morally reprehensible, right? Um, whereas on the other hand, like the, the gender-based stuff, like homosexuality can be acted on ethically, you know, and sometimes it's acted on unethically too. Like there's obviously rape among homosexuals too. Oh yeah. You know, U.S. prisons uh, are rife with it and we sort of have this running joke about it, but nobody seems to really want to address like the problem. Like they, we, we consider it a problem, but like, you know, there's this sort of like taciturn or latent idea that they sort of deserve it, which is kind of, it's always been a little fucked up to me, but. Yeah, no. And, and so, yeah, I guess I was just trying to point out that um, the, the gender-based attractions are not as as ethically or morally fraught. Um, I, I think with part of what I think would be good about increasing public awareness of auto-heterosexuality, you know, female autoandrophilia, male autogynophilia, is that people will finally be able to have a, a real discussion around like just using cons constructs that accurately reflect reality. And I expect the liberal discourse process to be ugly, but ultimately that it'll arrive at some sort of steady state solution that accommodates most people well enough. Yeah, I mean, and that's sort of the beauty of Western society, right? We can have these difficult, tense, fraught discussions and not murder each other, like some people in other parts of the world. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I just I find this whole subject like really fascinating. Um, another thing that I saw in your book, you sort of you sort of shy away from the idea of kink and fetishism. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I don't use those terms to talk about autogynophilia and autoandrophilia because um, they tend to stop people from thinking clearly. Uh, they, there are terms where if you describe something as a kink or a fetish, the trigger it gets, you might say. it gets, well, it's more that it gets like devalued as unimportant or something that's just strictly erotic or it, it places various restrictions and negative sentiments on something that as far as I can tell, arguably counts as a sexual orientation. And so I just use the term sexual orientation because if someone has a stable sexual preference for a particular type of thing, I think that counts as their sexual orientation. Okay. But so let me just, uh, let me, let me hit you with some, some terminology and see what you think. So to me, a kink is what I would describe as an atypical sexual practice. So generally that, you know, it's an activity that we would get into that would eventually culminate in orgasm that you know most of the population doesn't get into right um so i don't know if that you know so agpism seems to be also like a lifestyle in addition to sort of an erotic thing for some people now i'm i don't know what the proportion is of agps who uh you know perhaps don't uh you know it don't don't uh don't complete their you know come to don't orgasm to the idea of themselves as a woman um, versus people who, you know, like that just dress up as the woman and, li and like to see themselves and maybe get positive gender feelings uh, or gender associated positivity from seeing themselves as a woman, but don't necessarily feel the need to masturbate to themselves in that dress. Uh, maybe you can com comment on that a little bit. 
I think both of those count as autogynephilia. Um, like it often, um, autogynephiles, they'll sort of operate under their female persona in a way that it's, um, acceptable to their self image. So like you described, they might just dress up and like to see themselves that way and not do anything sexual related to it. And, and it'll feel better for them to not be like, it'll feel classier to them to not be doing sexual things. And so it's more egocentric than if, than if they were to have like overt eroticism associated with that behavior. Right. Okay. So it, it, it's, so in my, like the way that I define it, it could be considered a kink if you take it into the bedroom, so to speak. Uh, I mean, you, you could call it a kink if you want. I just think it's, it's just, it has such a huge impact on how people think it, it, it goes really deep in their psychology. It changes how they think about gender and their place in the world of gender. It changes how they think they want to live their lives and, and they construct their lives in such a way to accommodate it sort of like how they would with heterosexuality or homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's why I, I tend to just call it an orientation. I feel you. No, I'm, so I'm coming from like the gay, you know, my, my experience in the gay community, specifically with like the BDSM crowd and how they would, you know, often refer to it as sort of like a lifestyle in addition to uh, like a kinky sexual practice. Now, a fetish uh, is a little bit different. You know, a kink is like an atypical sexual practice. A fetish is more like um, a requirement. At least that's how I, you know, like these are the the way the words get used most often, you know, in, in terms of the definitions. So like you, you really can't have uh, arousal or uh, achieve orgasm without the particular whatever it is in place. You know, for right. the, the BDSM people, the BDSM people, they need to be hit, you know, getting hit or being hit in order to, to, to achieve orgasm. Um, Whereas I suppose if you had to, you know, the only way that you could achieve orgasm would be, you know, viewing yourself as a woman, then you would call it a, a fetishistic practice, or at that point it would be considered a fetish. Um, so the way fetish gets used, the way sexologists use it is um, sexual fetishism is an attraction to non-living objects or non-genital body parts. Mm. Um and so it, it's quite different from the colloquial usage of fetish or, or the version you just mentioned. Um, what you mentioned in terms of it being an obligatory um, sort of stimuli to facilitate arousal, like that would qualify as a paraphilia in the sense, you know, versus a paraphilic interest, which is like, say you like doing those things that are atypical, but you don't need it to get off. They mm -hmm. would, you could consider them paraphilic interests, but then if they're obligatory, then you could consider it a paraphilia. Okay. Because that it's like, yeah, and para just means like beyond. It's it's just like, you know, it just means any atypical sexuality and the term paraphilia is just defined in relation to what is called normophilia in the DSM, which is just, you know, when you see a physically normal adult and you want to get closer to them and and rub up on them and have sex with them like you know basically what we think of as vanilla um so basically that's why in my book i, I call all the things paraphilic i just call them non-vanilla because it it sort of it demarcates in, in a very similar way but in language that is you know i think a little more 
understandable to people and it's it's just pointing out that it's atypical but it's not making a value judgment mm -hmm. i feel you makes sense for sure um so another thing with uh auto heterosexuality is that it's got this like different degrees right so you, you mentioned that sometimes like guys could wear like ladies underwear under their sort of like standard dress um and that could be like enough um versus people who have to like you know really fully dress down in female garb in order to you know really see themselves as a woman and without that you you guys experience uh like depression like symptoms am i getting that correctly yeah basically yeah it's it's sort of like how with people have conventional sexual orientations where if they if they're being frustrated in their sex life like they're not able to find partners that are compatible with them that they'll sort of feel pretty crappy about it and be kind of depressed yeah i can i can report experiencing that in the past yeah it's, <laughs> yeah it's the same sort of feelings but it's just for like how your state of gender embodiment okay word that makes sense um and when we're talking about um like the the next generation kids coming up um so i know the really popular hypothesis is this sort of like rapid onset gender dysphoria so that's the idea that uh you know especially among like girls and especially among people that are on the autistic uh spectrum that they're very impressionable and so as soon as like one girl starts identifying as trans there's like you know a dozen trans girls now in in her class um can you talk about that a little bit like do you think that's uh are we seeing you know an expression of auto heterosexuality here or is this just sort of like you know the standard sort of kids going through fads doing things that are you know socially popular in order to fit in um i do think there's obviously an element of social contagion in the sense that the the current media environment and the way transgenderism is talked about in schools it makes it seem almost like a good thing like you're better because you know the the reverse oppression the progressive stack thing especially for young white boys <laughs> right yeah no and like that's that can definitely contribute to their gender issues and, and increase the chance of them just identifying as trans or non-binary but I, I do think that there's a lot of these kids that, that are identifying as trans that have some degree of auto heterosexuality. And it's, it's just that clinicians aren't asking about it. Like they don't know to look for it. You know, even with the, the males where it's like, it's very established that the most common cause of gender transition in males is autogynephilia. And yet a lot of clinicians have never heard of it or they don't use it in their thinking. They don't even know there's two different types of trans. So they have some patient come to them and they just have no conceptual framework for understanding what they're looking at. Yeah, that could be a big problem, right? Especially if they are uh, facilitating <laughs> like medical transitioning for kids who might not need it, right? That could be a- Yeah, no, and that's one of my concerns is that um, there's clinicians that are helping transition these kids thinking that like, oh, we have to save the trans kids. They have this idea of the trans kid. Instead, I think they should be looking at like, I, I have this kid that is reporting gender dysphoria. 
let's figure out which kind of gender dysphoria they have because there are discrete types and then work from there, you know? Um, right. Yeah. yeah. So that's probably where, you know, you and I would disagree is because I would just say that they have a mental health problem that needs treatment, probably stemming from some sort of trauma or some sort of unmet need in, in childhood. Uh, and that's kind of what, you know, messed them up. Whereas, uh, you know, it's, it, it, you know, where you would suggest that this is just sort of like the way they are. Is that um, yeah, that they, that they have some basically inborn predisposition that makes them more susceptible to developing gender issues, gender dysphoria, whatever you want to call it. The, the basic, the, um, the denial of their birth sex and the desire to be the other sex. Um, there's, yeah, it's autogynophiles are the most common type of male to female transitioner. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of female to male transitioners that have some degree of autoantrophilia too. Um, cause like I've been observing them online, like throughout the research process for my book. And, and even now I, I follow a bunch of different trans subreddits and other types of subreddits related to this stuff. And, Oof, that must be painful. <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm just observing it's, I, I, I'm what like a rationalist might call a high decoupler where I can like separate a fact from it's like moral consequences. Um, I'm just observing and trying to, trying to figure out what's real. And, um, I've noticed in the female to male subreddits, especially like in the, say like the gay trans guys subreddit, where it'll be specifically just androphilic trans men that their overall style of thinking is as if there was a female version, a female counterpart of, of male autogynophilia, but it's like, it's more fembrained in a way. Like it's, it's more sentimental and, and feely and less overtly erotic. Although some of them definitely do report eroticism relating to it. And when they do have threads like that, a lot of the responses are like, you know, like, wow, I'm glad it's not just me, you know, and, and things like that. So, and there's also a lot of trans men that specifically like, you know, yaoi or man, man, love man, like boy love sort of genre of erotica. And in, in those subcultures, there's a, there's a high proportion of, of them that do transition. So it seems to me that there, there is autoandrophilia influencing female to male transition. And I think, um, once scientists start investigating this possibility, um, we'll find out the exact proportion that are that are related to autoantrophilia. We'll find out the proportion that's related to homosexual gender dysphoria. And then we'll figure out, you know, in the remainder, like how many of these are just like social contagion or some other thing. Yeah, because that's, I mean, that's kind of what the, uh, one of the things Dr. Kenneth Zucker found, he was this uh, Canadian gender uh, dysphoria specialist um, in like the 80s and early 90s. And he still is. Right, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, they ousted him from his position at the head of a gender clinic outside of Toronto, I believe, somewhere in Canada. Yes, at KMH, yeah. They, they came after him because he was an advocate of the watchful waiting uh, was the, the rationale it was called before we had gender affirming. And watchful right. waiting is this idea where you just sort of like, okay, this kid has like gender dysphoria or, you know, gender confusion, whatever you want to call it. Let's just wait and see what happens. Let's give him, you know, a couple of years, let him develop. 
Um, and in about like 80% of the cases, roughly, you know, that, uh, with his patients. And so these are kids that had it bad enough to go to the doctor over it. Uh, yeah. It resolved on their own. And, you know, a high percentage of those people ended up being adult homosexuals. homosexual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the homosexual type of gender dysphoria. And, you know, like I said, there's the two types. And, and generally, the, the homosexual type is the early onset type. It's the classic image of transsexualism, where it's someone that's just very gender non-conforming from a young age. The little and kid getting of, into his mom's heels and stuff. Yeah. And dancing, dancing and all that kind of things. And a lot of times um, they'll have gender issues, but then like you, like you said, they'll grow out of it if, if um, they're not encouraged to do that stuff. And it seems to be sort of a temporary phase in the development of homosexuals that for some of them, they can have gender issues. But then a lot of times once they hit puberty and start, they just get their first like girlfriend or boyfriend, they realize like, oh, I'm just gay. And, and then they make peace with their uh, gender variant nature that they, that they don't fit in in terms of their, you know, gender nonconformity. And something I want to mention about um, the Zucker thing is that it, it's activists got mad at him not just because he was doing watchful waiting, but specifically the institution he was working at as part of um, it's. I'm forgetting the name it's abbreviated CAMH, but basically that that same facility um a few decades ago is where blanchard did his typology studies and so like activists have had a vendetta against that hospital for for decades now and so they basically just they want to reduce the influence of the Toronto researchers because they don't like what they say because it goes against what the trans movement wants to think. It goes against the, uh, the dogma of the day, right? The dogma du jour. Yeah. And, and like my, my principal interest in countering the dogma is like, cause I think it does, it does a disservice to my kind to be told that if you're feeling sad about being your birth sex or that you wish you were the other one, like i think it's a disservice to tell them that means you literally are the other gender uh, and that that means you're trans and you have to transition or you'll be suicidal i think it artificially forces people into a path that isn't right for a lot of them and i'm, I'm hoping that if more people understand auto heterosexuality they'll realize oh this is where my gender issues are coming from let me figure out some ways of like working this into my life that maybe aren't the medical pathway you know, let me see if there's some other ways I can deal with this based on my circumstances. And I'm hoping that if they understand it better, they'll be able to sort of figure out for themselves because right now the institutions are failing them. Yeah. And I mean, the institutions are failing all of us across the board, right? You know, from the, the federal government and all of its many departments to the media, to medical apparatus, you know, I mean, from the handling of the last pandemic to now, you know, mutilating kids is how I think of it. You know, frankly, when you're the use of puberty blockers, for example, is very, you know, very excited among these these trans rights activists and the gender ideologues. They have this idea that if you get if you just get the trans kid, the true trans kid early enough and you give them the puberty blockers and you give them the cross sex hormones, then they'll be happy and they'll be able to go on with life, sort of not really realizing that the whole thing, you know, 
uh, medicalized transition in general across the board sort of violates the, the most basic rules of medicine from do no harm. I mean, you're, you're actually, you're doing harm. You're from sterilizing the kids to cutting off healthy body parts, it's, that's harm. Um, to the rationale that like, you know, otherwise they're going to end themselves. It's just not, it, you know, it's not borne out in the data yeah, especially when you look at people who are post-transition, you know, the data shows like post-transition, suicidality hits its max at seven years. So they use all these short-term studies uh, where, you know, it says the kids are very happy, you know, post-transition without, you know, and then they lose track of people too. So it's, it's very, very shady the way that they would manipulate this data in order to create the perception that these kids that transition young. Meanwhile, we have examples, uh, you know, I can't remember the, the guy's name, but he was put on puberty blockers. He had the, the childhood transition. Um, he was a New York resident and he killed his father and stabbed his sister. And this was like, I wanna say two, three years ago. That was a big story at the time. You know, it appeared in the media and it went away because the media doesn't like to talk about how medicalized transition can increase instability and in, in these vulnerable individuals um, like in that case or in the case of you know say Audrey Hale who we just saw you know she just had a couple of pages of uh, you know her uh, people are calling it a manifesto her journal leaked on the internet where she described you know sort of this hatred of little white boys and and you know cisgender people and stuff yeah it's that that sort of like woke thinking I think is pretty toxic and, and I think that's p part of why I want to introduce the, the ideas I have out there because it, it can replace gender ideology in a lot of ways because gender ideology, it exists because it serves this subpopulation of people that have gender issues. It sort of like offers them an explanation of who they are and how they came to be that way in a way that that they find satisfying overall. Um, but it's, it's not true. So um, I think it's important to replace the untruth with true things. And so I just want people to understand that there's two distinct types of transgenderism and like sort of how to spot them and how it works so that when they have these feelings, they can stop being confused and ashamed about it and just be like, oh, I'm a sexual minority. Okay, fine. You know? It makes sense. Um, so AGPs then, would you say that AGPs don't go for medicalization or do you think a lot of AGPs do or? Oh, they're they absolutely do. They're the ones that want it the most. Like they're the ones pushing um, politically in the trans movement that are pushing the most for the like the child transition, for to speak, so to speak. Because um, there's when it comes to passing, what what's most important is for for male to females is to not have signs of masculinization, and so that's why they're so intent on having puberty blockers because. You know, then they they think, oh, I would have been able to pass if I had done that. Um, and uh, something that weirds me out about the youth gender transition is it's not being studied. Like you said, it's not being studied long term. And I would really prefer that if they are going to be doing this experimental treatment, that it is all centrally tracked so that every single person that enters it is, is tracked. And so you, we can find out the true desistance rate we can find out the true outcomes um, because right now our methods of collecting information are not sufficient to do that. And so it's, it's just this political battle rather than a sort of scientific, you know, investigation into what, what's true. 
At this point, I'm sort of of the mind that we just need to sort of like end medicalized transition across the board and because we're catching too many people. Yeah, I'd say even for adults, because I, I don't know at this point, you know, if it actually helps the adults that claim who are helped by it. And that's that's my subjective opinion. But, you know, I, and also I think the, the, the controls that we had on it before were pretty good, you know, in, in prior ages. You had to live as a woman for many years um, before you could even be considered for the surgery. Um, and I, the, the age, it was like, you know, they wouldn't even consider anybody under the age of 35. You know, those are, those are good controls. But at the same time, like, I, I don't know if it actually is helping or if it's just sort of continuing to feed into the mental health problem without actually identifying and treating the root cause. This is why I have a lot of I have a lot of trouble with psychology in general. There's a lot of like charlatanesque psychologists out there, just like there's a lot of charlatanesque medical doctors who are the, willing. The to root cause it. here is a, is a sexual orientation, so it's like it's kind of hard to treat the actual cause itself because you can't change that. Yeah, well, yeah, sure. You can tell. I mean, I, well, when I say root cause, I'm thinking something to do with trauma. I'm thinking address, you know any sort of childhood deficiencies that happened uh, in, the, in, the, in the individual's lifetime. You know, we all sort of like come up with particular um, accumulated experiences that we have to like reflect upon in order to become fully functional adults. Uh, and some of us have, you know, really tough backstories while some of us have great parents. And depending on what your particular set of cards were dealt, you know, if you had a really rough upbringing, the first thing you're going to have to do is deal with that. And, and if your rough upbringing resulted in sort of like an alternative sexual practice, like you probably want to, especially in that case, go back at your childhood and, and see if there was anything there that you need to sort of elaborate or reframe. Because oftentimes, or really, really all the time, coming up, kids normalize their experience. They sort of assume that my experience is normal. And it's not until you get older and you have some distance from you know, childhood that you can sort of look back and say, ah, my experience was actually not typical. You know, it was not normal for my parent to like lock me in the basement or uh, it was not typical for you know, me to be abused in this particular way. Um, a lot of kids don't get that until they get out into the world and have a chance to reflect. Right now we have these kids, you know, like Jazz Jennings is a great example, uh, you know, whose cluster B mom sort of just like put him through the trans mill so that she could make a buck off his back. And now we're watching, you know, I've never seen, I haven't watched the show I Am Jazz, but yeah, it's I haven't something. either. I think it'd be kind of depressing. Oh God, there's so many, there's like eight or nine seasons. Uh, there was a point where like, it actually had to stop because Jazz's mental health was so negatively impacted by the whole attention and stuff as he was trying to go to college. Um, it right. just blows and, and Jazz is of a homosexual ideology, as far as I can tell. So. I don't really know. Um, I don't really know. I mean, that's sort of most, at least with the people I talk to online, that's sort of the overall consensus is that jazz seems to be like not of autogynophilic ideology, but of the homosexual ideology. Um, and I, I think that I am kind of wary about transitioning the homosexuals because it seems like as adults, basically, the um the homosexual and the auto heterosexual population are of similar size and yet when you look at the transgender population 
um, you know, like three quarters or more are not homosexual, which indicates they're a different type. And so as far as I can tell, in aggregate, the trans community, um, it's the autosexuals that are choosing to transition more often and, and the homosexuals don't do it as much. So it's, as far as I can tell, it seems like transition is less of a beneficial treatment for the homosexual ones, you know, just on, on average, which is why, because they're choosing to do it less. Yeah. Um, Unless they're, you know, it, it also depends on context too, right? In an American context or in a Western context, it's one thing in Iran, homosexual males have to transition if they want to stay in Iran. Like they don't have well, a choice. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's research, um, and Lawrence did some good studies on this. Um, she looked at, um, the prevalence of homosexual and non-homosexual transsexualism across different countries and found that based on the societal individualism, like how, like whether they were collectivist or individualist, um, there was widely different proportions of between these two types of homosexual, uh, two types of transsexuals. And it was in the Eastern collectivist countries that there was more of the homosexual transsexuals because that's about blending into society. And in the Western individualistic countries, there is more of the non-homosexual ones, which means that they're probably autogynephilic. And so, yeah, in the U.S., where it's more about following your bliss and like living your truth authentically, so to speak, there's going to be more of the autosexual gender transition. I hate that phrasing, <laughs> but yes, I you know what I'm understand. talking about. Yeah, though. I totally understand what you mean. Yeah. yeah, it's more 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 individual, sort of self-centered. We're much more, you know. Uh, have that ability for you to sort of break out and do what you want, whereas... Yes, freedom. They kill you in other places for that. <laughs> right, exactly, freedom. <laughs> Woo. Um, I think we've pretty much exhausted the topic of auto-heterosexuality, unless there was any other points you wanted to make before we moved on to talking about the controversy with Genspec? Um, <laughs> let's see. Um... Oh, I yeah, wanted to something... ask you, do you have um, yeah. any any impressions on like the cluster B disorders and its affiliate and its association with uh, transgender or AGPism? Oh, um, I think sexual minorities in general have higher rates of mental health disorders. This goes for people that same sex attracted. It goes for the autosexuals as, as well, as far as I can tell. Um, so I think it's just that like if, if one thing goes off track in your development, it's more likely that other things will as well. And so that's just why, yeah, there's, there's higher rates of mental disorders among sexual minorities and higher rates of suicidality among them. I, I, I tend to lean more essentialist rather than social constructionist. And so I think that, um, I don't put too much stock in the minority stress theory stuff. I think it's mostly just due to developmental genetic sort of inborn factors that sexual minorities are having greater mental health issues and it, it's not because of oppression per se. Mm -hmm. Word. Yeah, I don't buy that at all. <laughs> I mean, yes, I can understand how oppression would, you know, lead to that, but United States, especially, uh, you know, Australia, UK, some of the most liberal progressive democracies in the world, you know, countries where you just have the ability to go out in public, you know, men dressed as women, uh, without being attacked is an advance, in my opinion, from not, you know, from where we were, you know, or where countries are like, you know, uh, was it Uganda, this is very anti-homosexual or the, the Muslim countries are very anti-homosexual. 
Now, my buddy Basil, he would come in and he would say that actually, like, you know, they're the ones that are advanced and we're the ones that are backward because they because of the deleterious impacts of homosexual behavior on the wider uh, in here, you can see his collectivist sort of background coming in, the wider sort of social uh, the society and how it's, uh, you know, causes le le now leading to children sort of being caught up into it, which is like the major sort of concern that everybody's really having. Uh, yeah, and it's a reasonable concern. Um, but I, I think, though, that generally the sort of the population that is same sex attracted or, or auto heterosexual, like these sort of sexual minorities, they'll comprise less than 10% of the population. And the, oh, yeah, totally. And so um, I I think it's good that they're, that people are allowed to be gay without being treated poorly these days. And you know that people can wear whatever gender of clothing they want. Um, but I, I do have some issues with how it's being taught in school, like about the queer theory, how they're trying to deconstruct normativity itself because that's not going to work if you're trying to just dissolve a society like well, that's yeah, communism do that. right? that's what they're doing there it's not right it's not even about the the queer theory per se you know with communists too it's always never about what they're actually saying it's about it's always about disrupting the sort it's of about the revolution yeah it's about revolution it's like how can we use whatever this is in order to piss people off enough that they're willing to engage in violence hmm and like so that's why they focus on these like very sort of triggering aspects at least that's how i see it and then eventually you do get people that will you know kind of go and they pop off violently um because they you know they they believe a lot of the lies that are promulgated by these uh these extremists and in, in the gender sort of neo-Marxist movement. Um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I have issues with wokeness too. Um, I, I didn't talk about it too much in my book because I was just trying to describe real stuff and that woke, woke isn't real. Um, but Did you yeah, mention like, like predators at all in your book, like predatory personality disorders, the psychopaths? No. Oh, word, okay. I'm just trying to like um, explain the, basically what, auto heterosexuality like male autogynophilia female autoandrophilia and i also have chapters that explain the other types of autosexuality just to really drive home the point that these orientations are real you know if if there's people like the example i use in the book is like if there's people that identify as dragons that also say that they're dragons in their sexual fantasies and that they're sexually attracted to dragons like maybe just maybe this also happens with heterosexuality too you know Sure. Um, yeah, it's sort of like um, what um, people, the atheists might call an outsider test where you like, you sort of show an example outside of the people's, like the category that you get defensive about how like, if you're trying to like, explain to a Christian how God isn't real, you would sort of ask them about like, whether they think Hindu stuff is real, you know, and then be like, well, you know, do you see how like maybe the Hindu reasoning isn't that good for stuff. Like maybe yours also isn't as well. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's definitely I a just... real phenomenon, right? We have it. Um, it definitely happens. I know there's probably a lot of uh, spurned women who are pissed off that their husbands turned out to be AGP. Uh, right, and that's part of why I'm doing what I'm doing because that's just another thing. Another bad externality of of the the gender ideology is that.
like there's something that's wrong about autogonophilia and autoandrophilia being covered up is there's people that are getting into committed long-term relationships and there let's say use the example of autogonophilia there's these wives that whose husbands like come out as trans after they've already married or even had kids and they they withheld that from their wives the whole time and this is wrong to the women they have a very limited fertility window it's like lying by omission it's it's really wrong and i think that it's a bit of a bait and switch <laughs> right and the thing is like i'm not even like trying to assign blame to the autogynephilic men that do this because they're not being told like the truth about their condition is being hid from them so it's not like they even were capable of understanding where those feelings came from and so i'm hoping that if more of them figure out that they're autogynephilic that like i think they should tell anyone they're dating on the first or second date um so that if that other person is not okay with that that they don't waste any of their time and yeah. well if there's a sexual behavior i mean gay gay people gay men sort each other by tops and bottoms you know like they won't even consider yeah. you know a bottom won't even consider dating another bottom or a top won't even consider dating another top because the idea of not having regular penetrative anal sex is just so far beyond their uh, frame of reference that they couldn't even consider it. Right. So, uh, but like with heterosexuality, it's like an even kind of an even bigger deal, like I said, because women have a, a smaller fertility window. And then if there's kids involved, you're like breaking up a family. And I, I want to avoid that whole situation from happening in the first place from creating the, the trans widows, so to speak. And you think you can and, do that by properly educating people about auto heterosexuality and giving them sort of like the, hey, heads up, like, if this is you, maybe don't marry a straight lady without telling her first. Or don't even go on like a third date before she knows. Right. Um, yeah. You know, basically, yeah, I want the men to know so that they can hopefully do the right thing and tell their partners. And I want the women to know so that even if the partner's not doing the right thing, they'll be able to spot it themselves and, and sort of like decide what they want to do about it. So how, how do we do that? How do we, you know, increase awareness of auto heterosexuality? Like conversations like this, obviously, are one way to do it. Your book is another way. Um, um, it's important that when it's talked about, it's not talked in a way, talked about in a way that is shames a person or makes them out to be bad. Mm -hmm. We can, Shame Similarly, how we actions. homosexuality and bisexuality. Right, exactly. Like it's it's sort of analogous to those in that it's not innately morally wrong to act on it. However, there are certain proper ways of acting on it and improper ways of acting on it. And once people understand the situation better, we'll figure out sort of the boundaries of proper etiquette. And I'm hoping that that will improve people's matchmaking in terms of dating and also just bring some reason to the whole gender debate. Cause right now it's, it's a lot of feelings, but there isn't much science going down. Yeah. So like, that's kind of, it comes back to my point that there's, so we have this sort of like overarching problem in society where cluster B personalities like psychopaths, narcissists, uh, borderline individuals sort of have this tendency to control and corral the conversation. Uh, they're the most hysterical, like, so they're, clearly like generally the loudest in the room. So like in lives of TikTok, for example, you know, the, the whole, whole brand is basically taking these people and, you know, relatively small accounts and then sort of blowing them up in a different medium, you know, like taking the things off of TikTok and putting them on Twitter, 
gives it a you know, cross exposure to a different audience. Um, but that's one of the things that, that I've seen or I've come across is that a lot of people who claim the trans identity or, you know, they love they're they're actually basically just like, you know, a psychopath or a sociopath or, you know, a really bad narcissist or, you know, cluster B is sort of like the uh, umbrella term for those people. And the disorders are not, uh, they're not really specific to each one. You know, a, a psychopath has sort of all of the traits, uh, whereas a borderline is more somebody with, it doesn't have a very stable sense of identity, whereas a psychopath and sociopath tend to be more conniving. Um, but all of these individuals, I, I think, crop up in these movements. And it's a big problem because they're sort of driving the discourse and acting as examples of their class, you know, whether it's an AGP or, you know, homosexual or a trans woman or whatever. And it's giving this sort of impression to, you know, the world, the audience that, uh, you know, that is the typical version of, you know, that type of person when that's actually just an example of a cluster B personality, you know, who is appropriating the identity of a class in order to accrue power and sympathy to themselves. Right. And so I think that's just an, that is partially an issue with social media where whoever is the most outlandish and triggers the most reactions is going to, you know, get the largest engagement. And this probably holds true even like, like outside of the whole gender and sexuality discussions, you know, with wokeism more broadly, it's, it's cluster B the cluster B influence is real and obvious. And yeah, it's really interesting when you, I, I think about how we have these, there's the individualist approach to seeing these as psychological disorders. And then there's sort of in aggregate, the sort of like cultural egregore that forms around um, these disorders where you'll have, you know, say like all the trans people grouping together as a culture, like making a trans culture, you'll have all the cluster Bs creating this new, like creating different norms of behavior that are, you know, pretty outlandish and histrionic um, and basically creating a societal version of their individual disorder. Yeah. I mean, RuPaul, I, I blame for ruining homosexual culture by exposing it to the straight people. It was so much better when we kept drag in our little dark clubs. You know, it was ours. It was, you know, you had to like, you know, go to a, you know, nightclub in order to see it. And it was an experience. It was like, a, you know, you'd be there in person. And then Ruth Hall sort of just like took drag, commercialized it, you know, like made it sort of like family friendly and then flopped it onto TV. And like, you know, basically it was a money printer for decades and still is. The show is incredibly popular. Um, and uh, that just sort of irritates me. <laughs> so any opportunity I have to sort of like trash talk Ruth Hall, I will take it. Yeah, I could tell you got beef. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just like, why did you have to go and take all of our fun things and give them to the straight people? Bad, very, very bad. Um, so, what happened at Genspec? You want to get into that? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I. Maybe we should start. Let's back up a little bit. Yeah. What is Genspec? Yeah, Genspec is an organization that's broadly speaking trying to battle gender ideology and sort and destroy w path and it it wants to 
make the non-medical approach to treating gender distress the norm. And so, yeah, it, it kind of has like two sort of things. It has this, like it cares about the people with gender distress or like, you know, it talks about caring about them and wants to reduce that. And then it also deals with the gender issue on the societal level of wanting to, like I said, battle against gender ideology. Right. WPATH is the uh, World Professional Association for Transgender Health. So this is like an organization that uh, puts together the standards of care that sort of like would say, uh, you know, giving puberty blockers to kids at this age or cross-sex hormones at that age. That's sort of WPATH's shtick, really. And so GenSpec is an alternative to that. They want to be a place, a resource for families and parents who are suffering gender confusion, perhaps, but they want to focus on the non-medicalized intervention. Is that approximately? Yeah, that's basically it. Like they just, you know, and, and politically they come from, I think it's fair to say they come from a gender critical perspective, from a sort of gender critical feminist perspective overall. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And so what was the culture though? See, you were, there was a conference. I know Laura went, I was not paying attention to this at all at the time it happened. Um, well, there's no controversy at the conference itself. Um, two days later on Twitter, yes, there was a controversy, but the conference itself was perfectly fine. When people left, they had no idea that there was going to be any Twitter bullshit. Like, so there's a big separation here between what the conference was physically actually like in reality and the sort of like hyper real online, like facsimile of, of it. Yes. The internet is a hall of mirrors and social media tends to not catch the important bits. Right. <laughs> right. And so basically the conference, it, it was fun. Cause it was, you know, I got to meet a bunch of the, the people, the big names in the whole gender scene. Did you, you know, give a talk? You talk about HPs? No. Okay. No. So you just went to the conference as a attendee. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I just I just attended, um, and, and I brought some books to give away, but I didn't sell them. I just gave them away to, you know, the like the people who are more influential because, you know, if one of them reads, it has a much bigger impact. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, you know, you're promoting your book. Yeah. I just given it away for free and, um, yeah, it was, it was fun. There's, there's a bunch of talks both days. Um, there, I mean, is overall very politically slanted talks. It wasn't so much about like, how do we help people with gender distress? And that was, that was something I was disappointed in. And I was, I thought it was going to be more about like, how can we help people that are going through gender distress? And it was more about how can we defeat gender ideology and, and defeat WPATH. Um, so, okay. yeah, so there was talks and then, you know, around, you know, after business hours are over each day, there'd be basically everyone just hanging out either in the, the convention hall or in the, the hotel lobby area, all talk just everyone's just talking and meeting each other, you know, right. kind of like a professional sort of conference. And yeah. And I didn't have any social issues with people there. I got along with people just fine. 
Um, and I had a good time meeting people. And then, so what happened? So you, you and Laura like took a picture together. <laughs> yeah, I was talking with uh, Laura the last the last day. Um, we we're just talking for a couple hours because I I'd follow her online for a while. I, I like her like aesthetic and her like vibe. She's pretty based. Love her vibe. And she is based. Yeah, yeah. She un undeniably based vibes. And so I was like, hell yeah, yeah I'm gonna talk to her. And yeah, so we we're just talking. And then the person who ran the the social media account for Genspect was like, Hey, do you guys want to take a picture? And we're like, all right. And we did that. And then, you know, the social media person said, do you, do you want me to mention your book in there? I'm like, yeah, sure. And then, you know, I told her what the title is. Um, she got it slightly wrong, but still, uh, you know, the title was in there. It was basically like, Hey, look, these people are here and Phil has a book. It, it, <laughs> that was the extent of the promotion, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And, um, then a couple that was posted immediately and it wasn't until a couple days later, I think Kelly J Keen, you know, Posey Parker, I think she retweeted it and like in a really aggro way with a quote tweet. Um, and it, it triggered, it sort of cascaded from there and a bunch of gender critical feminists and rad femmes got really mad that there was a literal autogynophile there wearing a dress. Yeah, that they did. And and the, the weird thing about this is that like I'm pretty well versed in, in their ideology. I get how it works. And they've said for years that it's okay for people to be gender nonconforming as long as they don't infringe on women's spaces or like ask to be called anything. Like they're pretty they were pretty clear that that was okay to be gender nonconforming. But then apparently that was not the case as long as you have the thought crime of, of like admitting that you're autogynophilic. Whereas if you lie about it, apparently it's fine. Oh, I see. So I, so you, the, they wouldn't have been complaining if you were like, you know, wearing ladies underwear underneath the thing, but because it was external, uh, I think that was the, the, the problem or cause you were presenting as woman. It's like, I don't even consider it presenting as a woman. I do wear women's clothes. Yeah. Um, but I'm pretty realistic about what I look like in terms of my height and facial features. And I know I don't look anything like a woman. So, I mean, I just think of it as, yeah, I just wear women's clothes. I'm not even like trying to ask anyone to call me different names or anything. I'm literally just wearing different clothes, uh, which I don't think imposes on anyone else. Um, but the, the feminists were acting as if I was like coercing them to be involved with it just by the fact that they might see me. Yeah, I think the language I heard somebody use was that, um, how did they put it? That you, that you were sort of like mandatorily forcing them to participate in your, in your sexual behavior. That was the right, they, accusation. And then it got yeah. into conversations about whether or not you were aroused by wearing women's clothes. It was a lot of speculations about or how aroused in I was. the moment. Yeah. I don't know how much of that discourse you saw, but it was pretty unhinged at times people like acting as if I was just like had like a perma boner or something. And it's like, no, I was actually just there paying attention to talks and meeting people, but it's, and yeah, I did write a book about sexual orientation, but like, I'm not nearly as horny as they think I am or that they're imagining I am, you know, I was pretty much there on business, doing business stuff, meeting people. 
And so you, you weren't wearing chastity underneath your dress and secretly... No. <laughs> no. no. Not caged nor plugged. Nope. And just... You won't elaborate. They don't, the straight people don't need no, to No, let's that. not elaborate on that. Nope. And, nope. Um, yeah, I was just wearing clothes that are pretty typical for me. Um, I live in Portland where it's okay to dress weird. Um, and I was just wearing my normal everyday clothes. They're not at all scintillating to me. I just put them on in the morning and then I do whatever stuff I'm going to do. Um, just like I imagine most people handle their clothing situation and Word. yeah, they, they got really mad. Um, well, the feminists online did the people that were actually there in person weren't mad. Like it's, it's important to be clear. This is entirely an online thing that happened because of how Twitter and social media works yeah, in person. Well, there was it was like fine. even a, a debate that happened between, uh, I think it was Kelly J Keen and Stella O'Malley. I want to say, I think what her name was. Yeah. They had a conversation. Um, I didn't hear it. I didn't get around to it. I just saw that it happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I saw that one. Um, I've seen well, a lot maybe, of discourse. Uh... Sorry, go ahead. I've seen a lot of discourse related to this. And it's, it's just really interesting to see that it sort of created infighting among the feminists because I was following by I was following the gender critical rules of using the men's bathroom, and literally not doing anything besides having gender nonconforming clothing, which is something they've stipulated as allowed for years. And, but on the other hand, they've also, they sort of, they sort of propagandize themselves to think that AGPs are the literal worst people ever. And so they, they hate autogynophiles. And so there's this conflict between their ideology and sort of their disgust and hatred response to the fact that there's an autogynophile there. Yeah. Well, you could say, I mean, feminists definitely, so feminists certainly have it out for men in general. I know I, and, and I've spoken with many men who have been the recipient of what I would call female supremacy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, or gynocracy is another word that I've heard thrown around, which I think is hilarious. Um, but I can only imagine how, uh, a man who presents as woman as a part of, you know, his daily life, could additionally trigger them because now how dare you man don their appearance, you know, thinking you are equivalent to them. How dare you, sir? How dare you? Well, I mean, and the thing that's ridiculous about it to me is like, I wish I could convincingly don the, like, woman like <laughs> appearance, like they're getting mad about something that like, I would like to be real, but it's not real. So I think the, the complicating factor here is we have a lot of women who have been you know, emotionally harmed by, you know, men who came up and ended up gender bending. And, you know, they felt that betrayal, that sting, which sucks, you know, yes, terrible. Like those dudes were shitty for going through that process uh, and, and putting those women through that. But, you know, that's how sort of those men had to deal with, or, you know, they, I guess they didn't have to deal like with that way, but that's sort of the, the, uh, sort of the impact really we could say of the societal uh negativity towards you know men playing with their gender expression or, or presenting as women 
you know, they, yeah, they and have the th- it in the closet, so to speak. There's something about this that's confusing to me is where like they're getting mad at me, whereas the work I'm doing would help reduce that situation of the, the trans widow situation. Like that thing that they're getting mad about, my the thing I'm doing will help reduce that happening in the future. And so there's sort of some convergent, there's some end goals that are convergent between me and them. Like, obviously I'm, I don't agree with feminists on all of the, their beliefs, but like there are some end goals in common and I fail to see how what I was doing is anyway threatening to their political project. You'd, you'd think they would be glad to have me there. Well, I think at the end of the day, it's a very emotional issue for a lot of them. And women are also more collectivist than men. So when one of them is harmed, sort of all of them are harmed. And there's a little bit more of that tribal sentiment, especially in an extra insular you know, movement or community like the gender critical space. Um, where you're going to have a lot of people who have already sort of dealt with betrayal and rejection from the wider, uh, you know, umbrella. Uh, they're going to feel a little bit more protective of that space. So I could, I could see where they get a little vicious if they perceive a threat. Um, a lot of the, the rhetoric I heard, too, in one of the spaces was um, they were concerned about, you know, you and your book being around, quote, unquote, vulnerable individuals, so I guess these are families and uh, you know, adults who are suffering from like gender confusion. So I'm not sure what exactly right. they were. But my book explains the psychology of the most common type of gender confusion. So it's, again, it's like, it's kind of incredibly appropriate that I'm there and it would be an omission to not have someone like me there that knows about the psychology of the most common type of gender issues. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I, I think it's a perfectly reasonable argument. Um, right. I think it's the sort of conflict I was mentioning between like Genspec's desire to defeat gender ideology politically and his desire to help gender distressed individuals themselves. You know, because mm-hmm. like the stuff I'm doing is more about helping the gender distressed individuals themselves. And I think it will have some secondary effects that help defeat gender ideology, but that's not why I'm doing what I'm doing. Word. Yeah, no. So one thing I was going through when I saw your book, a lot of labels, um, that was like my major issue with like the, the terminology is one of the things that we see happening. Like all these terms are being thrown out there. And while I think labels can be helpful, they can also be misleading. So we can have a lot of predators using these concepts as camouflage in order to conceal some of their more lurid, uh, you know, interests and things. So that would be the main thing that I would be concerned about. Um, that, that I'm introducing vocabulary? No, that, that predators could take the concepts and run with them. So not that the concepts themselves have a problem, but that we will we'll see sort of just like they've donned the, the, trans, the trans woman identity, you know, or what can they use? How can, how can they use the concept of AGP in order to acquire you know, more like access to women's spaces or something like that. That's probably where they're concerned. Right. But I don't think that's a realistic concern because compared to the ideology that says that anyone that feels like they're a woman and says they're one literally is one. I think the autogynophilic explanation is not as compelling, you know, in terms of inclusion. So I, again, like I, I, I just think that people knowing more, like having more accurate beliefs 
it, it, using constructs that are actually real and map onto reality will sort of bring some sanity to the situation. We could definitely use some more sanity in the situation. Um, yeah, so I, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens with, uh, you know, gen spec and whether or not they can displace or replace WPATH as sort of the main organization or body that sort of guides these, these individuals. Um, frankly, I don't even know if we need an organization that does that, you know, per se, I guess we, I guess we do because we have these individuals and, uh, yeah, no, there's, there's always going to be a need for that. So there will be, it, it recurs across generations. Cause it's like for people that have the genuine sort of distress that leads to gender transition and, and, and then they benefit from it. Like I said, that they're, they're generally either homosexual or auto heterosexual. And so these, these predispositions, they recur across generations and across cultures. So we do need to figure out what the right way, what the optimal way of dealing with it is. And I think by actually using the correct constructs that we'll, we'll be able to more accurately figure out the best way of dealing with it. Totally. Yeah. So I guess people are probably concerned about like the expansion of the idea you know, so we have like this sort of like creep of concept from, you know, the acceptance of homosexuals to a radical gender ideology. Uh, we've gone too far now, so we need to sort of like go back towards the, the center of like normality. I think AGP, you know, the concept of it can help bring a little bit more like rationality to the discussion as opposed to just this idea, you know, the radical gender idea of, oh, actually that boy is really a girl, which doesn't make any fucking sense whatsoever. Right. The question is more like, will that boy benefit from living as a girl? Mm. Like that's the, the sort of tangible question is like, would is gender transition appropriate for this individual rather than like, are they metaphysically actually a girl? Right. So you would argue in certain cases that answer is yes. Whereas I would say across the board, no. Right. That's I would. Yeah, no, it definitely is the right choice for some individuals. Um, and yeah, and especially when it comes to adults, like, um, I can't see, like, I have an issue right now with, with the fact that the causes of transsexualism are being covered up. So it makes it so that even adults don't even have good information on why they want to transition. Um, but if, if that gets fixed, um, and I don't see a good reason why adults shouldn't be able to pursue that. Um, you can, I mean, you can make an argument that it's like a tattoo. But then again, you could also make an argument that we don't let people remove fingers or, well, I guess we do, don't we? They, they, well, actually, I don't know if we do that or not. But it's definitely um, not medicine at that point. It's definitely more like body modification, which... There's I, I, some people that get, um, there's some people that they call transabled that, that have the body integrity dysphoria. Um, do they do that surgery in the United States? Do they allow that? Do you know? If um, my understanding is it's pretty hard to get. And usually the people that have it have to sort of force the hospitals to do it by severely injuring themselves in a way where like when they end up at the hospital, they have to get amputated. Okay. So um, there are some cases where it has been done, you know, in a planned manner with a lot of like vetting ahead of time with psychologists and everything. Mm -hmm. um, but that, that's pretty rare overall. But um, yeah, I, I've, I'm 
I think some adults do benefit from transition. And if I basically, I think transsexuals should be allowed to be transsexuals and we, um, it, it would be good if there was some more gatekeeping on it and, and some better education on like, Hey, here's why you feel this way. Um, cause there are serious issues with how the current system is set up. What do you think? Like, I, uh, 18 is the cutoff for medicalized transition or 25 or what do you think? 16? Uh, I think, I mean, with adults, it's, it's, it's different between the sexes where like the females, it's not as crucial that they get hormones earlier because it's easier. Females can always masculinize later, right? Right. It's, it's sort of like about masculinization such a one way trip. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, it's the earlier interventions, at least in terms of like the physical appearance outcomes are more crucial for the males. And um, I think like if there is a subset of, of minors that would be candidates for transition, it'd be some of the autogynophiles. I don't think the homosexuals are as good of a fit just because like I said, they, it seems like they're not choosing the transition as much, you know, p- relative to their proportion of the population and it, transition doesn't literally give them directly what they want. Where, whereas the auto heterosexuals, like it, everything that transition gives them physically and socially, like they want all of it directly. So it's transition just seems like a, a better intervention for the, the auto sexuals compared to the homosexuals. Have you, have you had any medicalized transition? Do you mind if I ask? Um, I haven't yet. Um, just cause um no hormones no nothing i mean i mean i dabbled for like a month or so but um i lost strength really quickly and i was like this is not gonna be worth it right um just because i i am very tall and masculine and basically the the benefits i'll get from estrogen are going to be so marginal compared to whatever the trade-offs are. And so I'm sort of approaching it in a rational way. Whereas if I had a different physique, um, such that like passing was a possibility, I would probably be on estrogen and doing that, but I'm just being realistic about it. And actually there's, there's a lot of autogynophiles that sort of are realistic about this, that, that don't transition because they're realistic about how they actually look. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. No, I was just curious. Um, cause I, I, I could never, I could never do anything. I could never transition. Like I'm happy as a man. I don't have like gender feelings. Like the, the idea of a gender feeling to me is, is completely foreign. No, I, I, I am a man. I I'm okay with being a man. I mean, I guess I was weird with the concept as a boy but that's because I didn't really understand manhood. You know, I was immature. Right. Um, and like I said, there's sort of a developmental phase that homosexuals go through where they might have some gender discomfort in youth, but then they tend to get over it around puberty. Yeah. One thing I do recall as a, as a young boy, I was very uncomfortable around older men as, as a young lad. They made me, I was little, just like, I just felt uncomfortable around them. They made me nervous. 
<laughs> you mean like in a heart fluttery way? I don't remember specifically. I just remember being uncomfortable around older men as a as a young lad. I think it was just because I was surrounded by women primarily. You know, I had female teachers. I was around my mom, my mom's friends. Uh, you know, in that zero to five window. I, I personally think it's really important that like little kids, you know, most of the time, especially in a Western context, women handle the rearing of of the children, you know, especially in that early window, zero to five. You know, it's only become more in the last probably like 10, 15 years where including the male parent in a lot of the baby aspects has become more in vogue um, and more popular. Um, but I think that you know, I like my case, like I said, I wasn't around a lot of older guys. I wasn't allowed a, a lot of men. My dad worked a lot of hours, especially, you know, when I was young, I was the first child. So it was early in the relationship and they were trying to build their wealth. Um, so he was, he was just at work frequently. So I think that sort of contributed to my uh, discomfort around older adults. And I think that led to a mystique around men. And I think that sort of led to an attraction that ultimately made me a big old faggot <laughs> yeah i mean i suspect you would have ended up gay even if you had a different upbringing but you it's know, no possible for sure it's very possible you know i just i feel like a, there could have been because i'm you know i say i'm gay there's probably like once out of every like ten thousand women i find attractive it's very very rare are they masculine women uh they're definitely like so they're well more like they i would say they're confident you know, not masculine like presenting, but you know, more they they definitely have like a stronger vibe about them. You mean like big dick energy? Yeah, they, yeah, they stand out. You know, they yeah, yeah, command attention. Um, that's that's one of the things that I've seen very few times, very few, very few. Um, but I think we're we're rounding it around ninety minutes. Is there any final thoughts you wanna you wanna throw in there? We should again promote what's your your book was yeah. uh, auto heterosexual. I keep messing up. Yeah, it's yeah, it's just the word heterosexual with auto in front. But um, yeah, it's auto heterosexual attracted to being the other sex. It explains the most common type of transgenderism, and um, I'm also on Substack at phililly.substack.com, where I've, I've put a lot of the chapters on there for free too, just because I wrote the book so that people would read it, um, and. I also have a Twitter at, at autogynophilic. Here's um, back. Yeah. And basically I'm doing all this because I think it's messed up that people that are autogynophilic and autoandrophilic struggle with gender issues for years on end. And no one just straight up tells them like, Hey, here's what's actually happening to you. And it's okay to be this thing, but like, hey, this is, this is what's actually happening. And just, because my kind, they're being bullshitted by gender ideology. Totally. And I just... It's the infamous And episode. also all the external externalities of gender ideology in terms of, say, like the rapid onset stuff with some of the females. Um, is the like the sports thing, the prison thing. Like there's just so many ways that that ideology is suboptimal and not serving the people that have gender issues themselves, let alone the broader population. And I just want to replace the gender woo with gender science. Fair. Very fair. Thanks for taking time, Phil. Appreciate it. Perhaps we'll have you back on in the future. We can have, uh, we do like these regular, like little group live streams. I'll, I may tag you or invite you in the future right. for those. Yeah, thanks for um, having me on. Yeah, no problem. Don't forget, everybody, like, comment, subscribe, share the show with your friends. 
Um, I'll be back again soon with another one. Thank you. Stay safe. Stay sane. Bye-bye.